from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CEA podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm in conversation with Leonard Schütte, who's the Clara Marina O'Donnell fellow here at the CEA. This is a very exciting podcast episode because it's Leonard's very first podcast. Welcome, Leonard. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Sophia. And the thing that we're here to talk about today is European reforms and what happened to them. It's over a year now already that French President Emmanuel Macron gave his Sorbonne speech where he outlined his grand vision for Europe in the September of last year. And Nanad, you've written a piece about what has happened since then, how Macron's reform proposals have been picked up or not really. And we also want to talk a little bit about what the latest developments in German politics the fact that Angela Merkel has announced that she will step back from the leadership of her party, what that means for the hopes for European reform. It's a kind of depressing piece to read, really, because as you're stating in it, not all that much progress has actually happened. But could you just outline for us, to get us back into this topic, what was the context of Macron's Sorbonne speech initially? So... Macron had been elected French president in May 2017 and what stood out at his elect during his election campaign that he was one of the first European leaders in years to actually run on an unapologetically pro-European platform. Uh, and many reformers around the continent had placed high hopes in him. And at the Sorbonne speech then, he basically provided substance to his vision that he outlined before in terms of concrete policy proposals, how he'd like to as he said, relaunch the EU. So the recurring theme um, that ran through his speech was that he wanted to create a sovereign Europe. And for him that meant endowing the EU with greater and deeper power so that it can actually act autonomously in the world um, and protect its citizens um, at a time when individual nation states had become too weak to do so. At least that was his argument. And in my paper, I focus on three concrete areas. So that is the Eurozone, the European asylum system and defense integration. And on the Eurozone, Macron really proposed quite a fundamental change in the underlying economic principles of how the single currency would be run. So he made a case for greater risk sharing, greater solidarity among member states and greater demand management. So concretely for him, that meant first and foremost that a Eurozone budget worth several digits of Eurozone GDP, as he said, so that meant hundreds of billions of euros should be created to stimulate investment across the continent. And he also suggested that the position of a Eurozone finance minister and a Eurozone parliament should be created to endow that budget with democratic legitimacy. Still on the Eurozone reform, he suggested to complete the banking union by creating an EU-wide deposit insurance scheme um, to stop bank runs from uh, overwhelming individual member states whenever citizens f feared for the security of their deposits in crises. 
And thirdly, he also took up the idea of transforming the European stability mechanism, which currently offers financial assistance to member states in crises, into an IMF-style European monetary fund with greater powers and greater resources. On the European asylum system, he didn't really propose anything terribly new, but he rather joined an existing chorus calling for a reform of the Dublin regulation. So the Dublin regulation currently delegates the responsibility of processing asylum applications to the countries of first entry, so de facto those countries that the external borders of the EU, uh, predominantly Italy and Greece. And during the refugee crisis, or the so-called refugee crisis, the movements of people had completely overwhelmed the two countries. So he argued that, um, alongside the likes of Angela Merkel, that the EU should install a refugee allocation mechanism by which member states would accept certain quotas of refugees from Italy and Greece to be distributed across the continent. He also favoured um, strengthening Frontex, which is the EU's external border agency. And then on defence, Macron argued, and here again we revisit the theme of a sovereign Europe, that the fundamentally changed geopolitical landscape, so the loss of the United States as a close ally or an aggressive Russia in Europe's vicinity, but also an increasingly assertive China, meant that Europe must become a much stronger foreign policy actor. So, and Sophia, you as an expert who's written about this, knows much more. But Macron really pushed the idea of PESCO, which is a framework to design, to produce, and to procure military equipment together, um, financially supported by the EU budget. During his speech, he also called for the creation of a so-called European Intervention Initiative, and really forgive me for all these technical terms. The European Intervention in Initiative is quite short on detail, but the purpose of this military project is to um, increase intelligence sharing, operational know-how, and ultimately foster what he called a common strategic culture. So, in sum, his, his speech really was a, was a tour de force, a manifesto for a complete relaunch of what the EU was in 2017. Right, so I, I remember when Macron gave his speech, I remember this really comprehensive list of proposals, and I remember sort of the excitement and the buzz at the time, because we've, we had heard a lot of talk about the Franco-German partnership, about the renewal of this motor of European integration. This was a critical time for Europe, and now here was Macron's outstretched hand, to Berlin. But then, Leonard, in this saga of European reform, what happened next? Yeah, I think you're touching upon the right point. Well, Berlin didn't react. In fact, Berlin, on Angela Merkel, left Macron out in the rain. So, on especially the Eurozone, Macron knew that, first and foremost, he had to convince the Germans of his ideas. And he thought the best way to do it was to show some credibility by embarking upon a series of domestic economic reforms. Because thus far, Macron knew that the reputation in Berlin or France had been that all that the French wanted was to get into the German taxpayers' pockets. So by, for example, liberalizing the French labor market, he really signaled his willingness to reform at home in order to obtain concessions on the Eurozone. Um, but I'm afraid that really didn't happen. Even, even though Macron did reform the labor market, the Germans never really responded in earnest. In fact, it took the Merkel government until the summer of 2018, so nine months after the Sorbonne speech, to really respond in earnest to his plans. And, and then it was the typical Merkel-like, lukewarm, non-committal response. 
The French and the Germans then subsequently met at Meseberg in June, where they reached some tentative agreement on a small Eurozone budget, much smaller than Macron ever anticipated, but at least, at least a first step, and also on reforming the European stability mechanism. But even these very timid agreements had a very short shelf life. At the next Euro summit in June, uh, most of Macron's plans were subverted by the Germans again, but also by other fiscally reticent members like the Netherlands. On the asylum system and on the reform of the asylum system, there's also been very, very little progress um, as the political climate has remained quite poisoned and thereby not very conducive to any substantial reforms. Um, in the direction that Macron, Merkel and others wanted. So I wanted to push back a little bit against this narrative that has sort of developed, I think, over the last year over why so little happened in Berlin. And I think that the narrative that we hear a lot is that Berlin was just distracted, right? It took a long time for Merkel to form her government, much longer than initially expected. And then the government was in trouble and she didn't really form a coalition. And now we, of course, have the most recent developments, which is that she stepped back from her party chair. There is now another candidacy run going on in Berlin. And again, Berlin is kind of inward looking and distracted. But I'm wondering if you think that this is the whole story, Leonard, if you think that really the problem was just Macron was there, Merkel was distracted, or if the problem isn't rather that Berlin doesn't actually buy into his ideas. No, I, th I think you're quite right. Um, at the heart of the disagreement lies an intellectual disagreement, what has actually gone wrong with the euro during the euro crisis. The policy elites in Berlin, especially those on the centre-right, still clutch to the narrative that it was fiscal profligacy in the South, too much spending, irresponsible fiscal behaviour, that lies at the root of the Eurozone crisis. Whilst Macron disagrees with that, he says the, the, the fundamental problems are institutional. Uh, there's a lack of coordinated fiscal policy. There's a lack of risk sharing. So he proposes fundamental institutional reforms, whilst the Germans think it's, it's a behavioral question. And Macron, perhaps it was impossible, but he certainly never managed to convince the Germans of the merits of his ideas. So you're quite right uh, in that it's not just about domestic politics and the rise of the IFD and, and all, all, all sorts. It is intellectual as much as it is political. And then, of course, the EU is not just uh, France and Germany, even though we sometimes make the mistake, I think, of reducing it to that. But there are a lot of other countries who had to be convinced by Macron's ideas. And not, he doesn't really seem to have been successful in forming a coalition around his reform proposal. Why do you think has so little been achieved? Well, because just like you just said, he has also underestimated the fact that the EU consists of more than France and Germany. I think he was quite surprised by the level of opposition that has emanated especially from the smaller northern member states. So centered around the Netherlands, a new group, the so-called New Hanseatic League, has formed and uh, comprises of eight northern member states, so the Netherlands, the Baltics and others, who viciously impose greater um, deepening of the Eurozone reform. And they have really intensified their cooperation to make their voices heard and they have played a substantial counterweight to Macron. And I think this is one of the mistakes that Macron has made. He really has invested most of his political capital to change the minds in Berlin and thereby has completely neglected other very important member states and we can see the consequences of it today. And then, of course, you've now touched upon the Hanseatic League, you've touched upon the issue of 
the intellectual consensus in Berlin. But then the EU has been in trouble also from the populist side since Macron has given this speech, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that has two concrete consequences for Macron. Firstly, and that is one aspect that is often forgotten in the public debate, is that the election of the League and the Five Star Movement in Italy as a new government in March, I believe, 2018, has meant that Macron has probably lost its closest and most powerful ally in reforming the Eurozone. Most Italian governments before had really been online with France um, on, his, on Macron's ideas. But the new government um, and uh, the ongoing struggles between the European Commission and the, and the Italian government over the budget heralds that, has really abdicated the role of a constructive force in Brussels. And Macron has lost a key ally here. So that's the first consequence. The second one is that most governments have felt that their room of manoeuvre, their room to compromise in Brussels, has shrunk as a result of rising populists at home. Most have succumbed to either bashing the EU, just like most populists do, or at least um, ignoring it altogether. But the EU is a beast that really relies on compromise. And if governments in Berlin, in The Hague, or elsewhere are reluctant to compromise, very little can be achieved. And I think the current stasis that we're seeing on Eurozone reforms, but also on asylum reforms, is a product of that unwillingness or inability or both to compromise. I really like the picture of the EU as a beast that relies on compromise. That's a nice mix of invoked feelings there. But then what could Macron have done differently? I mean, as you said earlier, what everyone, especially those in Berlin, asked of him was sort of, you know, you have to reform at home first before you can even ask us to reform the European Union. And reform he did, you know, he pushed through a quite harsh labor market reform in France. What else could he have done to have more success on the European level? Well, it's a tough one. Counterfactuals are always difficult. Um, as I alluded to before, I do think he focused too much on Germany and uh, insufficiently on others like the New Hanseatic League, although even that wouldn't have fundamentally changed his fate. Ultimately, he might have been the right man in the wrong time. He has been held hostage by nationalist politics and the unwillingness to compromise across the continent. And I see very little that he could have done differently, at least on Eurozone reforms, to change Berlin's mind. I mean, he really has gone out, all out in France, threatening his own popularity, which we have already seen plummeting over the past few months and far-reaching domestic reforms, which in fact Berlin had always been calling for. You know, So Macron has has stood stood by his his part of the bargain, whilst Berlin certainly hasn't. So, you know, ultimately, I think it was more external factors that really thwarted his ambitions more than his own mistakes. Hmm. No, I, I take your point. I just wonder, I mean, what could have really possibly been a better time to reform Europe? But yes, um, we would be amiss if we didn't also discuss having this conversation this week, what Merkel's decision to step back from the party chair of uh, the Conservative Party in Germany means for all of this. Without her as party chair and with her potentially as a weakened chancellor, she might not even be able to, to finish her whole term. Is that good news or bad news for Macron's reform proposals? Well, in, in the very short term, it's bad news. Um, it means that Germany will become even more obsessed with domestic concerns. And if you think about the timeline, so the Conservative Congress, when the new party leader will be decided, takes place in early December, just one week 
before the next Euro summit, at which Macron really hoped for a breakthrough on Eurozone reforms. So that summit is pretty much dead in the water. And in, f in light of the upcoming European Parliament elections in May 2019, that's probably the last chance for any meaningful reform until the summer. So in the very short term, it bodes ill for his reforms. In the longer term, it really depends on who will succeed Merkel. Among the candidates, the current party secretary, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, is the most explicit pro-European and Francophile, and she views Macron's much more favourable than Angela Merkel and most in her party, so she might be able to instill some pro-Europeanism into German policy. Friedrich Merz, the former chief whip who's now appeared as well as a contender, is not really known for his support of greater fiscal federalism, but at the same time he recently signed an open letter with the likes of Jürgen Habermas calling for greater German contributions to the Euro European budget and calling for European unemployment uh, insurance, which is quite interesting. It's difficult to predict whether that is just a red herring or is a genuine conviction. And the third candidate for party leader Jens Spahn is much more skeptical of the virtues of the EU. And in fact, he's much closer to the vision of uh, Sebastian Kurz, Austria's chancellor of Europe as an association of sovereign nation states. So the bottom line is that the party congress will really bear massive consequences for the future of Germany's European policy. Brilliant. Leonard, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I don't think anyone would have been able to tell that this was your first one had I not outed you in the very first minute. But we're looking forward to recording more of them with you. I think we might be checking in again uh, at the time of the actual party congress in Berlin. Thanks so much, Leonard. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.